Uh, well, friends, uh, I don't know about you, but I love watching episodes of Bondi Rescue. Uh, it's the quintessential Australian show, isn't it? Uh, you know, it's the show where people get in all sorts of trouble out in the water at Bondi Beach. It's usually a Korean overseas student uh, who doesn't know how to swim but uh, gets swept away by the rip. But the show itself is really about the lifesavers, isn't it? Uh, they are strong. They are the ones who are bronzed and good-looking. They are the ones who put themselves in harm's way for the good of those who are in danger of losing their lives. And so the whole show grows our appreciation for these lifesavers so that we can be confident in them. Uh, now, we've been working our way through the Psalms, and uh, today we're, we're up to Psalm 96. And uh, I want to suggest that um, reading Psalm 96 is a little bit like watching an episode of Bondi Rescue. Uh, what it's meant to do is it's meant to instill in us confidence in our God who saves. Uh, if you have a look at the passage, uh, you can see this idea, I think, in verse 10. Uh, so Psalm 96, verse 10, uh, you can see there that the psalmist says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Uh, in fact, in, in book four of the Psalms, uh, which is the part of the Psalms that we're in, uh, there is a small cluster of Psalms from Psalm 93 to Psalm 99 where this uh, particular phrase is repeated again and again. And so, for example, if you just uh, turn back a few psalms to Psalm 93, verse 1, Psalm 93, verse 1, uh, you can see there that the psalm, psalmist says, the Lord reigns. Uh, if you go across to Psalm 97, verse 1, it says there again, the Lord reigns. Uh, in Psalm 99, verse 1, again it says, the Lord reigns. In other words, in contrast to the hopelessness of Book 3 of the Psalms, which, if you remember, was set in the period of Israel's exile, where there was very little hope of salvation, where God had deserted his people in judgment, well, this cluster of Psalms is meant to give us hope that Israel's God reigns supreme over all the nations and therefore is powerfully able to save his people. Uh, now, the background to this particular psalm, I think, is the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was uh, created during the time of Moses and the Exodus. Um, if you don't know what the Ark is, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was basically a, a, a wooden box um, that God tells his people to create during this time. And uh, what God does he, is he tells his people to put into that wooden box. Does anyone remember what he, what he tells them to put in there? Ten Commandments. Yeah, the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the law. For you see, what the ark was meant to teach the people of God of God was that right at the heart of the life of Israel was to be the covenant and the word of God. However, 
uh, later in Israel's history, during the time of Samuel the prophet, what you see is that, tragically, this ark gets captured by one of the foreign nations and it gets taken away from the people of Israel. Uh, it's, it's captured by the Philistines uh, as part of God's judgment for the sinfulness of Israel. And uh, uh, the Philistines take the ark to one of their cities called Ashdod. But nevertheless, even in this foreign place, uh, God continues to show the Philistines who is really boss. Uh, we read that account in, our, in, in the Bible reading this morning in 1 Samuel 5, didn't we? Um, which is meant to be a comical sort of contrast between the worthlessness uh, and the weakness of idols and the majesty and strength and glory of the God of Israel. You know, uh, the ark is taken to the temple uh, of Philistine's God, uh, who is called Dagon. Uh, Philistine was a, was a coastal sort of region, and so uh, Dagon was this half-man, half-fish type of character. Uh, they must have been fishermen uh, in, in Philistine. But uh, the ark is, is placed next to this idol called Dagon. And uh, the next day, when the Philistines go into the temple, what do they find? Well, they find that Dagon is flat on his face. And so they put him back upright again. But the next day, when they go in again, what do they find? Well, they find that Dagon's head and his arms have been chopped off. So they need to put him together again. I mean, what is the use of worshipping a God that you have to sort of glue together uh, so that he can, he can stand up properly. You see, what this shows is that the God of Israel is greater than any nation, and in particular the idols of those nations. Idols are nothing, says God. Idols are worthless. Idols are helpless and weak because they require human hands to create them, and yet God is the one who created all things in this world. He created the heavens and the earth. Uh, you can see that this is the point being made in our psalm this morning um, in verses 4 to 6. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to Psalm 96, verse 4 to 6. For there it talks about the greatness of God, doesn't it? Uh, verse 4, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. In other words, the God of Israel is not some small local God like Dagon. You know, gods like Dagon, uh, or even our modern day gods, might exercise their influence over a small group of people. And yet, God, the God of Israel, is the one who created the world and so reigns over every single person and every single thing in this entire world. He is the God of gods. He is the King of kings. He is the creator and he reigns over all things. So this is why in Psalm 96... The psalmist there 
does not call out for Israel to praise God. Uh, he does that in some of the other Psalms. But the psalmist actually pray, uh, calls upon the nations to praise this God who reigns over all the world. Uh, you might know that whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, uh, it's speaking about Yahweh, which is Israel's God. It was the name of Israel's God. And you see, it's precisely because the Lord, Israel's God, reigns over all the nations that all the nations are called to praise his name. Uh, you can see the command there in verses 1 and 2, can't you? Verses 1 and 2, there's a threefold repetition of the word sing, sing, sing. Uh, I know it's possible to sing sad songs, but uh, usually when we sing, we are feeling joy, isn't it? And so uh, this is a command to sing to the God of Israel with great joy and enthusiasm. But it's not just singing either, is it? For you can see there in verses 2 and 3 that it's also about declaring. It's about telling. It's about speaking this message of joy as well. Who is to do the singing? Uh, well, in verse 1, it is all the earth, as I mentioned. Uh, I don't think this is talking about you know, the ground in Israel, which is what some of the commentators say. But uh, as we've just seen, it's better to understand this as all the people and nations across the earth. It's the whole world that is called upon here to praise the Lord in song. Uh, where is this singing to be directed? Well, uh, there's both a, a vertical and a horizontal direction in the passage, isn't there? In, in the first two verses, the nations are to sing to the Lord. It, it, there's the vertical. Uh, and yet, in verse 3, they are also to tell and declare and proclaim this message to the nations and the peoples of the world as well. There's the horizontal. And what is the content of the singing? Well, the nations are to sing about the salvation of the Lord, aren't they? In verse 2, they are to speak of this salvation day by day. In verse 3, they are to declare to the nations about uh, this glorious God who saves and his marvelous works in, in saving his people. Uh, that's why it's called a new song there in verse 1. Uh, we sing a new song when we find ourselves in a new situation that is wonderful and good, don't we? Uh, and so, for example... Many married couples have a song that they have chosen for themselves. Is that true? Uh, hands up all the married couples here who have, you know, our song. Oh, Terry. <laughs> that, that was a fast hand shooting up. Um, very romantic, Peter. Um, or uh, some people might have a holiday song. Uh, you know, it's not the song of drudgery, of working nine to five, uh, five days a week, but it's a new song of, of singing on holidays. Or when you hear the wiggles being played uh, in the car, you know you've entered a new stage of life, haven't you? Uh, you see, friends, the song that the nations are invited to sing here is the new song of salvation. If you know the God of Israel... 
No longer are you singing a song of slavery or misery or drudgery and oppression, but you are singing a a new song of salvation, a joyful song that you can sing with enthusiasm. Of course, uh, this song of salvation was one that the Israelites could sing again and again throughout her history as the Lord saved them again and again from the nations and the rulers and the gods around them. Uh, It was part of their greatest hits collection, if I can put it that way. In fact, uh, if you turn quickly with me to 1 Chronicles 16, uh, 1 Chronicles 16, um, if you don't know where 1 Chronicles is, uh, just go to the table of uh, contents and you'll be able to quickly look it up there. But uh, 1 Chronicles 16, uh, you can see there that Psalm 96 is sung by the people of Israel during the time of King David uh, when he defeats the nations around him and uh, as he provides a, a time, as he ushers in a time of peace and security for the nation of Israel. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 16, Uh, The Ark of the Covenant is is brought uh, back to Jerusalem. Um, And there is a great celebration led by David himself. And he appoints singers and musicians to sing the words of Psalm 96 with joy and thanks to God. And so uh, you can see it there in verses 23 to 33, can't you, of 1 Chronicles 16. Uh, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations and so forth. It's the same psalm that they are singing. However, when we turn to the New Testament, it is those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ who are singing this new song. They are the ones who are able to sing this new song. And so uh, you don't have to look, look this up now, but in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, you see uh, the new song being introduced again. And it is those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, the lamb that was slain, who are the ones in heaven singing this song of praise to God. My brothers and sisters, if you and I are people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, what God is saying in Psalm 96 is that we have every reason to sing God's salvation with great joy. Uh, But friends, here's the thing. I want you to see that Psalm 96 is not simply a light-hearted invitation for the nations to sing to God if and when they feel like it. It's actually a command from God to those among the nations who have been saved by him to sing with great joy. In other words, to not sing as those who have been saved by the Lord is to disobey what God says. I wonder how seriously you and I take singing when we meet together as God's people. Uh, I'm happy to be corrected on this, but uh, I reckon it's easy for us to think that being at church for the first song is not all that important. Is that right? 
perhaps we think to ourselves, well, it's just singing, and as long as I'm here for the sermon, well, that's the really important bit. That's what really matters. But uh, friends, I wonder whether you've actually thought about that in the category of disobedience to God. For God's people from all nations are commanded to sing of our salvation together. Uh, of course, it's not a dry obedience without you know, any warmth or joy that God is calling for here. Uh, I love the words of John Newton, uh, who was the great hymn writer who wrote the words to Amazing Grace. Uh, he writes this poem where he says, Our pleasure and our duty though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty adjoined to part no more. Our pleasure and our duty to sing are not opposites anymore, but they're one in the same thing. But it is true, friends, isn't it, that sometimes it's very hard to sing of salvation together with God's people. Um, I'm very aware that uh, at times we go through periods of tragedy and personal grief uh, or times of depression or suffering. And uh, perhaps when we gather as God's people, our mood doesn't actually match the joyful singing that we, that we hear. And uh, I'd like to say two things about that. Uh, firstly, I think this is the reason why we need to sing songs that express the gospel of our Lord Jesus with great depth and insight and robustness so that our songs are not, you know, airy-fairy, trivial songs, but they are the ones that can support the weight of even our grief and our suffering. And uh, I think uh, our music team does a, does a marvellous job of, of choosing good, solid songs that can support us in this way. And so uh, I think we need to uh, thank them and to continue to pray that they will keep on doing that for us. Uh, but secondly, uh, I think even during times when we find it difficult to sing, um, I want to encourage you to keep on coming to church and singing with God's people. Because uh, as we've just seen, uh, there is this horizontal dimension to our singing as well, isn't, isn't there? And so even if we're at church and uh, we find ourselves um, in great difficulty and we can't uh, sing the words, I think there is value in hearing the words of others singing to you so that we can be reminded of the gospel again and again and so that the gospel can minister to us even through times of trial and times of difficulty. Well, uh, we've seen that the Lord reigns over this world and calls on the nations to praise him in song. But in the next little section, I want you to see that the, Lord, the Lord's reign also calls for the nations to worship this God of Israel. 
Uh, you can see the command there in verses 7 to 8, can't you? Uh, there is this uh, threefold repetition again. Uh, this time it's the words, ascribe, ascribe, ascribe. Uh, it's not a word that we use often, but it simply means to give something, to give credit where credit is due. Uh, who is to do the giving? Well, in verse 7, it's the families of the nations. Uh, this might be talking about you know, each nation being a family, or it might be talking about all the families in uh, each nation. But either way, all people in every nation, including you and me, are invited to come and worship the God of Israel. Uh, who are we to give to? Well, um, it's fairly obvious there, isn't it? In verses 7 to 8, uh, we are to give to the Lord. But notice that there is no horizontal element here. For it is only God who deserves to be given this kind of treatment. What are we to give? Well, in verse 8, we are to give glory to his name. Uh, the word glory just means reputation or ability or worth, doesn't it? Uh, the glory of Sydney uh, is its harbour. The glory of Cristiano Ronaldo is his football skills. Uh, the glory of the South Korean soccer team is... <laughs> Nothing comes to mind. <laughs> but the glory of God is that he is the one who is above every God and the one who created the heavens and the earth. Notice, however, the way we give God this glory. Uh, in verse 8, it is by bringing an offering and coming into his courts. Bringing an offering and coming into this court, his courts. Now, uh, this would have been an astonishing thing for Israel to hear. For to the Israelites, uh, people who were not part of Israel, that is the Gentile nations, were considered worse than dogs. They were the unclean who could never approach the holy God of Israel. And yet here, there is a call for those who are unclean to come, bringing an offering to God. But what is it that you and I can give to God in worship? What is it that you can possibly bring as an offering to God that is worthy of him? Uh, I hate going shopping for presents for people who have everything. Is that the same with you? Um, you know, it's easy to get a present for a newly married person because you know, they have nothing. Um, so you just buy them a toaster and they're happy. Um, or some pillows or a vase. Uh, there are just so many things to choose from that you can give to a, a newly married couple. But it's not like that when you're shopping for people who are a bit older uh, who have everything <laughs> that they need, isn't it? What is it that you can possibly give to God who created and owns and runs everything? What is it that you can give to the one who quite literally has everything? Well, the answer that comes in this passage is that the appropriate thing to offer God is your life. Uh, 
It is to give all of yourself to him. It is to be rightly submitted to him as the king of your life. Not just a part of you, but your whole self, your whole life. That is what it means to worship this God. That's what I think the Apostle Paul speaks about in Romans 12, uh, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You see, it's your whole bodies, your whole self, your whole life that God wants and not just a part of you and me. What parts of your life, friends, are you not prepared to give to God to rule over at the moment? Some of us might say, I'm happy to give God a part of my life on a Sunday morning, but I'm not prepared to give God reign over my ambitions and over my plans for my life. Or, I'm happy to give God a part of my life on Sunday mornings, but I'm not prepared to give him reign over my money and my possessions. They are no-go zones when it comes to God. Or, I'm happy to give part of my life on Sunday mornings, but I'm not going to give God reign over my comfortable life. You know, I am not going to do things in my Christian life that make me uncomfortable. Friends, can you see here that if the Lord reigns over all the earth, then he demands nothing less than your whole life and my whole life. Is he the king? Is he the king over all your life? Okay, we're on the home stretch. Uh, We've seen that because the Lord reigns over all, the nations are called to sing God's praises. We've seen that because the Lord reigns over all, the nations are called to worship God by giving their whole lives to him. But in the final verses of Psalm 96, uh, you can see there that the psalmist returns once again to this theme of rejoicing. Uh, You can see it in verses 11 to 12, where again, there is a threefold repetition of a word. This time it's the word let. Uh, Let there be gladness, let there be rejoicing, let there be exulting, and so forth. Uh, Notice who is called to rejoice in these verses. Uh, In the beginning of the psalm, we saw that it was the peoples of the nations who were called to rejoice, didn't we? But here, it seems to be even inanimate objects. Uh, In verse 11, the heavens are to be glad and the earth is to rejoice and the seas are to roar. In verse 12, the field is to exult and the trees of the forest are to sing for joy. In other words, uh, all of creation, uh, animate as well as inanimate, are called to worship with joy. But friends, here's the twist. Why is all of creation here rejoicing? Well, you can see it there in verse 13, can't you? It's because the Lord comes to judge the earth. It's because, the ju- because of the judgment of God that is coming 
that all creation rejoices. Now, that may sound a little bit strange to us because I, I think um, uh, we are used to thinking of judgment as a, as a negative thing. But it's actually the opposite of judgment and justice, which is truly horrific. For the opposite of judgment and justice is lawlessness and anarchy. It's a bit like what it would be like to live in Syria or Iraq or Nigeria at the moment, where there is precious little recourse to judgment and justice. Uh, You might have heard of the kidnapping of a hundred or so girls from a school in Nigeria recently. Uh, It happened in February of this year. Uh, These young girls were taken from their schools by an extremist Islamic group called Boko Haram. Uh, What you may not know is that the only girl who was not released back to their families at the end was a Christian girl called Leah who refused to deny her faith in Jesus. Leah's mother lives constantly with the fear of not knowing whether her daughter is dead or alive. Christians in Nigeria are killed, raped, and violently persecuted uh, day after day for their faith. What do you think they pray for? Now, I bet they pray for God to come and bring judgment and justice and to put things right again in this world. You know, we live in a Christianized part of the world where the vestiges of our Christian past has given us a functioning system of law so that we have some measure of justice in this country. And so we forget sometimes that most of the world actually cries out for judgment and cries out for justice to come. But friends, notice how the Lord will judge when he comes. It's there in verse 13. It says, He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. In other words, when the Lord comes into the world to judge, it will be seen to be right. It will be seen to be righteous. When God comes into the world to judge the world, it will be shown to be faithful. Faithful to his promises. Faithful to his covenant. Jesus came. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God, the reign of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. With the coming of Jesus, God the King had come into this world to rule and judge in righteousness. Only this judgment would result not in condemnation, but in salvation for all who put their trust in him. For on the cross, Jesus died to take the just punishment that those who did not worship God, who rebelled against God, deserved for their sins. He died to take the just punishment that you and I deserved, so that through his death we might have salvation. But this judgment at the cross 
was preliminary to a judgment to come in the future. For three days after his death, Jesus was resurrected to life. And this resurrection was God's proof that Jesus would come again to judge the world. Uh, in Acts chapter 17, uh, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles in the, in the Greek city of Athens. And in verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, the death and resurrection of Jesus proves that a day of judgment is coming when God will once again put things right in this world. God will answer the prayers of Leah's mother, who prays day and night for Jesus to return. God will answer the prayers of people who want things to be put right again. For there will be no more murder, no more rape, no more violence towards God's people. God will deal with those who do not worship him. You see, when you understand the gospel, you can sing for joy even about the judgment that is to come. But this judgment to come will also show God's faithfulness to his covenant promises uh, in the final book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, uh, we are shown a glimpse of heaven where people from every tribe and every language and people and nation are gathered around the throne of God singing a new song in praise to God because they have been saved by the blood of the Lamb who was slain for them. On that day when Jesus comes again to judge the world, God will be shown to be faithful to his covenant promises, his promise to bless all the peoples of the nations. And friends, this is something that we can see uh, even amongst us, isn't it? As we have many people from many different nations all coming together, singing a new song in praise to God for our salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who will come is the one who is faithful. The one who will come is the one who is righteous and will judge this world in righteousness. And that is why the message of the gospel is for the whole world to hear. We want people to turn back to this God and King, so that they too might find salvation. And so let's be people who sing with joy. Let's be people who tell all the nations that the Lord reigns, uh, that Jesus is his King who is on the throne, and let's call on one another and the people around us to repent and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of gods, the King of kings, the one who created all things and reigns over all. And so we pray that you would help us to uh, 
worship you and to give you the glory, uh, to put away our idols and to submit our lives to you as our true and living God. We thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through his death and resurrection we have salvation, but also your assurance that a day of judgment is coming when you will put all things right in this world. We pray especially for Leah, who has been kidnapped. We pray that you would please keep her safe. We thank you that you have given her courage not to renounce her faith in Christ. And we ask that you would continue to uphold her so that she might stand firm in him. Father, we pray also for her mother and her family and uh, others like them, uh, that you would be close to them and that you would comfort them with the gospel and give them hope in the Lord Jesus Christ who will one day come to bring justice into this world. Father, as we also wait for this day, please help us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us to give our whole lives as living sacrifices in worship to you. Now, please rule over every area and help us to be the people who sing for joy and tell of your salvation to the nations. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.